Good morning, church. So glad that you're here this morning to worship the Lord. Um, We are at a place in our series right now where uh, you could say that we're turning the final corner, uh, coming down the home stretch, uh, so to speak, and uh, we've been going through this series in 2018 called Looking to Jesus and uh, going from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis in January, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, bring the series to a conclusion in the book of Revelation. And all the way through, as we've made our way through, all the way through the Old Testament with the judges and uh, the kings and the prophets, we have seen uh, the promise of Jesus all the way through. Then we finally made it to the New Testament, into the Gospels, and as we get to the Gospels, we see the person of Jesus. And then now we come to these final few letters uh, at the end of the New Testament called the Epistles, and we see here the power of Jesus in our lives to live the life that he has saved us to live. And so really all the way through this series, we've seen the promise of Jesus and the person of Jesus, and now we see the power of Jesus in our life to uh, live the life that he has saved us to live. And so let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to see uh, this morning how the power of Jesus works itself out in one of the most important areas of our lives. Just a little bit of context as we get into this section of God's Word. Uh, The Apostle Paul has written these letters to this church in Corinth. This letter that we know as 1 Corinthians is a letter that uh, he wrote uh, to the church in Corinth to address some serious sin issues that needed to be taken care of. He wrote an additional letter that we know as 2 Corinthians, and in this letter, he deals more specifically with the attitudes of our hearts that bring about real and lasting change within our lives and some practical ways that we see those kinds of changes. One of the most significant changes that Paul talks about in the book of 2 Corinthians is about how we view money. Now, Sometimes people get a little bit nervous when we come to church and we start talking about money. And we think especially about giving our money and giving our money generously. Because the reality is, um, I know how to spend generously. Anybody with me on that? Like you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? I I know how to spend generously. I know how to save even semi-generously. But give generously? Like, really? Like, like I, I have to imagine that in a group this size, there's some of us right now, when I mention money, that we're kind of squirming in our seats a little bit and maybe thinking to ourselves, well, I've worked hard for my money. Like, this is my money that I have earned, and, and I've worked a long time to save the money that I have and, and to earn the retirement that I'm joy, enjoying and to enjoy the money that I'm spending. And, and maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum altogether, and you're like, my life right now is actually pretty hard, and I'm doing everything that I can just to keep my head above the water, financially speaking, and I have to be super careful with every dollar that I save and every dime that I spend, and, and sometimes the thought of coming to church and talking about money just rubs a lot of us the wrong way. Like some people come to church, and they're like, why can't we just come to church and preach the Bible? Well... Did you know that God actually has a lot to say in his word about money? Like 2,000 verses worth of stuff to say about money. So I'm not short on content today, is what I'm saying. God has a lot to say about money. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Why does God say so much about money? 
And I think one of the reasons he says so much about money is because he knows the kind of power that money can have over us. Like few other things in our lives, money has the ability not only to control what we do, but to reveal what we desire. For example, just last weekend, North America almost lost its collective mind on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And just in that, you know what I'm saying? Like just in that one weekend alone across North America, $30 billion spent. Like money has power over us. Like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that money is a big deal for everyone. We save our money, we spend our money, we invest our money. There's hundreds of different ways for us to invest our money, which is why I think God has so much to say in his word about money. Just listen for a minute to some of the things that God says about the influence that money can have over us. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the apostle Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So notice what the Bible is saying here. It's not just having the money. It's not even just spending the money. He backs it up one more step and says, it's the desire for the money. It's the desire to be rich, the craving, he calls it here, the craving for the money, the longing in our hearts to have more money, more money, more money. That's what leads us into temptations. That's what leads us, he says, into these snares, into these traps, in other words, that we don't even see. In fact, Jesus brought the discussion of money back to the only place where we can begin to properly understand it. Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Like We need to understand this is actually really, really serious because Jesus says right here in this verse that how you spend your money reveals how you're spending your life. How you spend your money reveals how you're spending your life, and that's a really serious thing. So can I just take this opportunity right now at the very outset to be absolutely clear? I am not preaching this sermon on money right now so that we can meet a budget at the end of the year. I am not preaching this sermon on money right now so that we can accomplish a goal that we have set for a Christmas offering. I'm not preaching a sermon on money right now so that I can try to convince some of you to give regularly or to give more as if I could convince you to do that. I can't convince you to do that. The Spirit of God has to do that work in every single one of our lives. I'm not preaching this message on money this morning for any of those reasons. Those are good things. Those are important things. But those are not the main things. The reason that I am preaching this sermon on money this morning is because as your pastor, I care about your heart. And that's what this is all about. Over and over and over again, the Bible warns us repeatedly about the power that money can have over us, both for good and for evil. But the reality is, if the way that you spend your money reveals how you're spending your life, and if the Bible goes on to say that this idolatrous longing for more money within our lives can actually cause people to wander away from the faith, that this idolatrous longing for more money can actually pierce us with many griefs, then loved ones, we need to understand that this is a really serious thing and we cannot afford to ignore it. Like this matters a lot. So for clarity's sake, 
as we get into God's word this morning, understand this is not just a message about money. This is a message about our hearts, which is why we come to this passage now in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul is basically saying the very same thing in a slightly different way. Instead of just talking to them about the actual giving of money, he's actually talking to them primarily about their God who has so generously given of himself to us. And so because God has given so generously of himself to us, we now give generously back to God and to one another, which is why we need to see right from this passage here that a right view of God leads to a right view of giving. A right view of God leads to a right view of giving. So let's read through this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Apostle Paul writes this, starting at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So Father, I pray right now, would you lead us in these moments, Lord, to hear clearly, directly, and only from you. God, would you guide us? Would you give us the ability to think well based on what you have said in your word. Lord, would you fill our hearts with faith? Would you fill our hearts with gratitude for all that you've given to us? Would you help us to see that a right view of you leads to a right view of giving? So God, we give this time to you. Spirit of God, come, be our teacher. Do the work in us to sanctify us that you need to do. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, so let's take this passage 2 Corinthians 9, and let's ask seven questions to help us evaluate our hearts when it comes to biblical giving, okay? Seven questions to help evaluate our hearts when it comes to biblical giving. Here's question number one. Is my giving generous? Is my giving generous? Now, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are the longest consecutive stretch in the New Testament about the necessity of generosity in giving, Paul's talking here about biblical giving, and so he begins here in this section in verse 6 by summarizing everything that he has said since the beginning of chapter 8. He's reminding this church that they had committed to give this special financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. And so now instead of Paul simply telling them what each individual person within the church needed to give, he teaches them instead some of the foundational principles of biblical giving, and he starts here with generosity. And so he says in verse 6, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now just picture in your mind, if you can, um, a farmer who's walking through the field and he's planting seeds in the field and he's looking ahead to the harvest that's coming up later at the end of the year. So you've got one farmer and he's got some seeds in his hand and he's walking through his field and he's like, plant a seed over there and plant one seed over there and plant one more seed over there. And he's just walking through his field and, and he's just dropping seeds in the places where they need to go, but he's doing it very, very sparingly. What's the harvest going to be like for that guy at the end of the year? Not very good, right? Now imagine you've got another farmer who's in the field right beside him, and he's walking through his field. He's doing the same thing, except he's grabbing into his pockets, and he's pulling out handfuls of seed, and he's walking through the field, and he's just scattering the seed so generously all over the place in the places where it needs to go. What's the harvest going to be like for that guy at the end of the year? It's going to be a lot better for farmer number two than it is for farmer number one. And some of us approach money like farmer number one. We feel like we're losing so much of our seed if we just walk through the field and we start scattering so generously. But notice this. The farmer who plants the seed generously understands something very important about the seed that God has given him. He understands that planting is not a waste of the seed. He understands that the more seed that you plant now, the more crops that you will have later. Why? Because that's what the seed is for. The seed is for planting. And the more seeds that you plant now, the greater the harvest that you will have later. And Paul says now that this is how it is with the money that God has given us. The money that you have is like seed that God has given you to plant in certain places. And a person who plants that money generously in God's fields understands something very important about the money that they have been given. They understand that planting that money generously is not a waste of the money. That person also understands that the more seeds that you plant now in God's fields, the greater the harvest will be later. Why? Because that's what the money is for. The money is for planting seeds in God's fields now so that we reap a harvest later that only God himself can give. Maybe uh, you don't give financially. And for some of you, uh, the reason that you don't give financially is not because you're stingy. It's because you're afraid. And for some of us in the room, this is a very real thing. Our finances are the point of our greatest fear. And the reason that you don't give is because you're like the first farmer and you're afraid that you're going to lose the little bit of seed that you have. And sometimes, maybe even most often, that's a reflection that we are trusting more in the money that we have than we are in the God who has given us all the money that we do have. And that's why, loved ones, that this whole message is not just about your bank account. It's not just about your spending habits or your saving patterns. It's not just about that. This is a message about discipleship because this whole subject of how we handle the finances that God has given us is actually about our hearts. So is my giving generous? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait just a second, because we can't just go out and start scattering seeds all over the place with no idea where they're going or how they're going to grow. Like, there has to be some kind of wisdom and discernment that we use as we walk through the fields and plant the seeds, to which I would say, I absolutely agree with you, which leads us then to question number two. Is my giving intentional? Is my giving 
intentional. The first part of verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now notice what this does not say. It does not say each one must give unless you're going through some really difficult financial times right now. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say each one must give unless you have a lot of debt that you're trying to pay off right now and you're aggressively using every penny that you have to try and pay down that debt. It doesn't say that either. It doesn't say that each one must give unless there's other people in the church that are doing the giving and it looks like everything's going to be okay. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say that each one must give unless you're under the age of 21 and then don't worry about it. It doesn't say that either. Which is why I believe parents and grandparents that it is so important for us to be teaching our kids the importance of whole life stewardship. Like not just financial stewardship, yes, that for sure, absolutely, but teaching them that our entire lives are a gift from God so that no matter what circumstances we may go through in the course of our life, we spend our entire lives for God. So the Bible says each one must give from the youngest of those who follow Christ to the oldest of those who follow Christ, from the wealthiest to the poorest of those who follow Christ. Each one must give. No matter what your financial or life circumstances may be at this particular point, each one, Paul says, must give. But then he goes on and he carries on that sentence and he says, as he has decided in his heart. Now, sometimes we speak like that in our culture, don't we? Like you have an important decision to make and just follow your heart, which is just about the worst advice that we could give, right? Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. But Paul here is speaking to people who understood that the heart was not just the center of the emotions. The heart was actually the center of the will. And so it's in the heart where the deepest consideration is given to the most important decisions within our life. So the Bible is saying here that how and what you give is not just an emotional decision that you make on a whim. He's, he's trying to guard us from things like coming to church and thinking that the size of the check we write or, or the amount of money that we drop into the offering bag is made purely based on how we happen to feel that day. It's not what he's saying here, but instead, the Bible is saying that how and what you give is to be a calculated, well-thought-through decision that is ultimately the result of time spent with the Lord in prayer. See, when it comes to giving, the Bible teaches us to hold two things at the very front. Generosity and priority. So we've just spoken about generosity. Am I giving out of the blessing that's been given to me? And here, it's about priority. Am I giving God the first and the best of what has been given to me? Am I giving God the first and the best of what he has given to me? Someone once said that um, everyone gives their first and best to something. It's true, isn't it? Everybody does it. Everybody gives their first and best to something. And whatever it is that you give to usually reveals what you treasure and what you trust the most. And you say, well, how do I know then that I'm giving my first and my best to God? And I would answer that question with another question and ask you, are you giving in a way that shows that you value God the most? That you value him more than anything else that you value in this life? More than anything that you have, more than anything that you do, more than anything that you invest in? Are you giving in such a way that shows that you value God the most? It's so easy for us to get swallowed up in this idea that the whole point of biblical giving is about landing on a certain number. Like, I have to give this much. Now, does God value the size of the gift that we give? Absolutely he does. 
He has great value in the size of the gift that we give, but the reason that God values the size of the gift that we give is because the size of the gift that we give is a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of time spent with the Lord in prayer and trusting that the Lord will continue to provide. So it's not just about finding a certain amount. It's not just about everybody giving the same amount because the reality is we could go around the room right now and we'd be hard-pressed to find even a few people who have exactly the same income with exactly the same circumstances and so on, so on, and so on. It's not just about finding an amount. Is the amount important? Yes, it is. That's between us and the Lord, but that's not the only thing. It's not just about finding a certain amount. It's about fostering a certain attitude. That's why it's about our hearts. What have you decided in your heart to give between you and the Lord? So verse 7 continues and says, Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's question number three. Is my giving joyful? Is my giving joyful? So he says here in verse 7, not reluctantly. In other words, not with a sense of regret. It's like, oh, here comes the offering bag again. That time in the service again. I got to give again. It's not like that. Not reluctantly. Not under compulsion. That is, not feeling the pressure to give. Not feeling the pressure to give more. Not feeling the pressure to give a certain amount. Not feeling the pressure to give in a legalistic way. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in verse 7 is where we get our English word hilarious. It's hilarious, isn't it? God loves a hilarious giver. Not hilarious in the sense that, yeah, it would be hilarious if you knew what I gave. Not, not in that sense. Not talking like that. He's talking the act of giving brings so much joy to our hearts. Like the act of giving and the act of giving more and giving more and sacrificing more just brings joy that flows from a right understanding of the cheerfulness and the abundance and the overflowing nature of how God has given to us. Let me take you back to that um, that illustration of the farmers, on the one hand, you've got the first farmer over here, and he's the guy who's walking through his field like this, and he's just flicking single seeds all over the place, and, and um, he's, he's just doing that, trying to figure out what to do, and he's sowing reluctantly, he's sowing sparingly, but he's walking through the field, and he's like, I'm giving and I'm grieving because I've got this seed that's been given to me, and, and why do I have to give away the seed? Why can't I just hold on to the seed and, and just play it safe? Like, why do I have to put this in the ground? He's just walking through the field and he's giving and he's grieving. But then there's this other farmer on, on the other field right beside him and he's walking through the field and he's picking up big handfuls of seed and he's scattering it all through the fields and, and he's like, man, I'm not giving and grieving. I am sowing and growing and like let's do this right now because I want to see the benefit of this. So he's just walking through the field and scattering the seeds everywhere so generously and, and he's using what God has given him and he thinks it's absolutely hilarious that he can take this little seed that he used to be able to hold in his hand, in the palm of his hand, and he can plant it in a certain place in the ground. And a little while later, that little seed that he planted in the ground grows into something so big that later it's going to fill his barns. 
Like that is amazing. And it just fills him with so much joy and so much gratitude that God can take those little seeds just in the palm of his hand and suddenly it becomes so much bigger with so much impact and it impacts so many more people. One farmer's walking through his field. He's giving and grieving. The other guy's walking through his field. He's sowing and growing. And which one are you? Which one are we as a church? The answer to that question, I think, reveals whether or not we believe what Paul says next in verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Question number four, is my giving faith-filled? Is my giving faith-filled? Now notice all of the alls in this passage. Verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, like all the ways that God proves himself to be everything that we need. And so this comes down to the first four words of verse eight, and God is able. And God is able. Like God is able to make all grace abound, like literally to make grace overflow in our lives. But he says that there's a reason for that. Like God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. In other words, having complete and total and perfect provision for everything that you need at the exact moment that you need it. That's what our God does for us when we give to him in faith. That's what he's talking about here. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Here's the reason. Don't forget the reason. So that you may abound. Literally, you may overflow in every good work. So we can give joyfully, we can give generously, we can give intentionally to the work of God with the confident expectation that God will give us everything that we need at the exact moment that we need it so that, don't forget the so that, like don't forget that God gives to us for a purpose. He gives to us so that we can continue to do the good work that God has put before us to do. That's how amazing our God is. Like, is that not great? And then Paul quotes in verse 9 from Psalm 112. Psalm 112 describes a man who fears and follows God. God has blessed this man with wealth and riches. And so Paul quotes directly from Psalm 112. He says, he has distributed freely he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In other words, his generosity is the evidence that he fears and he follows the Lord. So to be clear, his generosity is not what saves him. His generosity is evidence that he has already been saved by a God who has been so generous to him. And now he is abounding in every good work. Like just think for a minute of, of what has been accomplished in this church because of how God has made his grace abound to us. 
Like I think instantly of what's going on down those hallways and in those classrooms right now in Harvest Kids and seeds are being scattered right now into the hearts and into the minds of children in those classrooms. Resources, Bibles, materials being put in the hands of kids and parents and families and hearing the gospel and their lives are being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of the biblical counseling ministry in our church and how biblical truth is being spoken into some of the most difficult experiences that people go through in their lives and people are being trained to counsel and resources being put in people's hands to grow in their faith through trial and difficulty. I think of this place where God has given us to meet right here, right now. Think of God's grace to us in that. I think of all the different ways that we attempt to help people hear and respond to the gospel within their lives. I think of all of the prayers that have been answered over four and a half, almost five years, how God has been faithful and over and over and over again. He has just made his grace abound to us. And loved ones, these things don't happen without your generosity. So hear me. I'm not fundraising right now. I'm not giving you a sales pitch right now. I have no desire to be a fundraiser, never will be. No desire to be a salesman, definitely don't want that. It's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to help us see the tangible ways that God has made all grace abound to us so that, don't forget the so that, right? So that we can continue to move forward with the confident expectation that God will give us everything we need at the exact moment that we need it, so that we can continue to do the good work that he has put before us to do. Which leads us then right into question number five. Is my giving kingdom-minded? So notice verse 10. It says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Notice something really significant here from the beginning of verse 10. Everything starts with God. God approaches the subject of giving God approaches the subject of stewardship from the perspective that everything belongs to him. That's why he says in verse 10, God is the one who gives the seed to be sown in the first place. And God is the one who causes the seed to grow into what it is. But then God is the one who comes to the person who faithfully sows the seed that they have been given and then gives them more seed to sow. Why does God give more seed to sow? Because the end of verse 10, so that you can sow even more in God's fields. And as a result of your obedience, as a result of your righteousness, the impact of what God will do through that then becomes bigger and bigger. Think about it. More people saved, more people baptized, more people discipled, more people in small groups, more people in discipleship classes, more people growing closer and closer to the Lord, more people going from this place, taking the gospel to our city, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to places that have never before heard the name of Jesus, more people going, more people sending, more people giving, and God doing this over and over and over again because his grace abounds which leads then to verse 11 you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way so does that mean that if you give money joyfully and generously to God's work that God then is going to give you an increase of money in return it could mean that that is part of every way right 
But it doesn't only mean that, and I would even suggest it doesn't even primarily mean that. You think about this. You, you take the seed that God has given you, and you plant it in the field where God takes you, and God makes that seed grow, and what grows out of that could be a greater sense of contentment in the life that God gives you to do his work. 1 Timothy 6, for godliness with contentment is great gain. It could mean that God takes the seed that you've sown and, and he uses some of that to, at the same time to raise up more people. And as he raises up more people, that seed that you've sown is then used to multiply our ability to reach more people with the gospel. It could mean that God takes what you gave and, and at the same time he raises up more missionaries from within this church and we can use what has been given then to send those people to parts of the world where the name of Jesus has never even been heard. I mean, think for a minute again about that farmer. He takes the seed that he plants in the ground and then God makes it grow. But does that seed that he was once able to hold in the palm of his hand, does that seed look the same when it springs up out of the ground as it did when he put it in the ground? No, of course not. Right? It looks totally different. Instead, it grows into something that looks completely different from the seed that he planted, and it has the ability to do something far greater for far more people, and that's the way that it works within the kingdom. God supplies the seed, and when that seed is faithfully sown, he multiplies it then for more sowing so that it has greater impact, and so we can be even more generous than we were when we planted that first seed all that time ago. And the result, like this whole process, you gotta see, this whole process is supernatural, right? Like God gives us that seed to sow. We put it in God's fields. Only God makes it grow. Only God brings about the produce, and God makes it grow, and then the result of that is supernatural as well. Look at the second part of verse 11. Paul says, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So question number six, is my giving sacrificial? Is my giving sacrificial? When Paul talks about supplying the needs in verse 12, he's talking specifically about the Jerusalem church. They had experienced severe persecution they had an extremely severe need, and it would take a sizable sacrifice on the part of the Corinthian church to help meet this need that the Jerusalem church had. Remember that time when uh, Jesus was with his disciples, and uh, they were walking along, they were being followed by this huge crowd, and Jesus has compassion on the crowd, and he tells his disciples to go and give the crowd something to eat. And they look back at Jesus, and they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, I mean, even if we put all of our salaries together, we still wouldn't have enough money to get enough food to feed all of these people. And at that point, a boy walks up to Jesus, and he's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And these loaves of bread, they're not like, it's not like he was walking up to Jesus with five loaves of wonder bread and swinging them in the air and like, here you go, Jesus, let's see what you can do. It's not that. These, these loaves of bread, these were more like cakes of bread that you could just hold. They were like the size of the palm of your hand. And he's got five of these, and he's got two small fish. And, and he comes before Jesus, and I wonder if he was there that day, and, and he's there with his family, and he walks up to Jesus with these loaves of bread and these fish, and he's like, here you go, Jesus. Like, this is my lunch. And if I give you this right now, then I have nothing. But here you go. I'm going to give it to you, 
I'm going to trust that you're going to multiply it and do things for these people in ways that I never could. And so Jesus takes those five loaves of bread and those two fish. He blesses it. He multiplies it. 5,000 men plus women and children. So upwards of 20,000 people sitting on that hillside that day. And they're all fed because Jesus has multiplied the five loaves and the two fish. Now, did Jesus need that food to satisfy those people? I mean, you read into Mark's gospel, and Mark says that, that every single person on that hillside that day, they all ate and they were satisfied. Did Jesus need that food to satisfy all those people? No. I mean, he could have done it with like one bread cake and a fish tail if he wanted to, but he didn't. The point is that God doesn't have needs. God does not have needs. He doesn't need anything from us in the sense that we are able to give God something that he lacks and only we can give it to him. He does not have needs like that at all. The point is when we take what has been given to us and we willingly and sacrificially come before Jesus and we put it in his hands, just like this little boy on the hillside that day, we willingly and sacrificially put it all in the hands of Jesus. He has a way of taking what we give him and multiplying it in a way that we never could so that many more people are blessed and provided for so that many are overflowing with many thanksgivings to God. Now just put yourself on the hillside that day. Imagine you're one of those 20,000 people and you see Jesus perform this miracle. You see this little guy walk up to Jesus with five of these small loaves and two of these small fish and Jesus takes it, he blesses it, he multiplies it, food's distributed for everybody and you're standing there, you're in that crowd and you are satisfied because you've eaten what Jesus has provided for you and just imagine in that moment the thanksgiving and the praise and the worship that is rising up to God like a sweet sacrifice because in that moment one person and stepped up and said, here, Jesus, take what I have. You can take it, and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna multiply it in ways that I never could. And all of a sudden, praise and worship and thanksgiving is rising up to God, kind of like the aroma of a sweet sacrifice. It's rising up to God, and God is glorified in the midst of it. So, is my giving generous, intentional, joyful, faith-filled, kingdom-minded, sacrificial, and then this, number seven, is my giving gospel-driven? Is my giving gospel-driven? Verse 13, Paul says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Speaking of the Jerusalem church, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. See, this is where it all begins. This is why we say a right view of God leads to a right view of giving. Notice the progression here. Let's work backwards in verse 13. So our lives have been changed by God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. We have confessed him as Savior and Lord, which results then in submitting every area of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to his control within our lives, including our finances, which results then in glory being given to God, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those who are impacted by our giving. Then he says, verse 13, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. It can be really easy for us to get tunnel vision when it comes to this, and and we think to ourselves, okay, I'm giving right now to this need that I see right in front of me, right here and right now, and there's certainly an element of truth to that. But I wonder, do we realize that what we give right now 
may not bring about a harvest for another 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years to come. Like that's part of what he's talking about when he talks about the all others in verse 13. Like just think about the impact that our gospel-driven generosity and our giving is having on a ministry like Harvest Kids or, or like our youth ministry right now. Like there are kids in those classrooms right now and by God's grace, the seeds of the gospel are being planted deep within their hearts and in their minds and our sacrificial giving is helping to make a ministry like that possible and then as these kids grow up, we pray that God raises up from those very classrooms, from our very youth ministry, that he raises up pastors and missionaries and business people who go into the world, go into different parts of the world and they go and they live the life that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the people around them that God has given them to impact in those moments, and people get saved 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now because of the seeds that are being planted right now. Like, just think about that. Think about how astounding that is, that because seeds are being planted in people's lives right now, that it may not reap a harvest for another 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years when it does, it's going to be amazing. And God is going to be glorified in it because as it does, thanksgivings and praise and glory and worship rises up to the one true and living God. And thanksgivings are given to him. To which Paul says in verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God, Upon you. you see, this is why we strive for gospel giving. Because the surpassing grace of God has been poured out upon us. That even while we were dead in our sins, God, by his grace and because of his love, he has made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And he has given us the ability to see with such clarity that Jesus Christ has died in our place and for our sins and that upon our turning away from our sins and trusting him in faith, we are saved because of God's surpassing grace upon us. So understand, this whole subject here, this whole idea of what we're talking about right now, this is not just about your bank account. It can't be. It's not just about your spending habits or your saving patterns. It is that. But it's not only that. This is a call for us to reflect on how Jesus Christ has given to us and to let that then be the pattern of how we give back to him and to one another. Which leads Paul then to this in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, I don't believe at all that this sentence here in verse 15 is just a, a nice little way for Paul to wrap up this whole section in chapters eight and nine with just one nice little sentence. I don't believe that. I think there is a ton of emotion that is packed into that one sentence. Almost like Paul is saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Oh, it's almost like he's saying, can you actually believe that the gospel is true? Like, can you believe that the gospel has actually changed you? 
Like, do you get that? Has it gone deep down within your heart? Can you believe that God loves us so much that in his holiness, he cannot look upon our sin, but he comes to us in the person of his only son because he loves us so much. And Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sins. Three days later, he rises again from the dead to prove that he has victory over sin and death forever. He's ascended to the right hand of God where he sits now in glory, and he's promised to one day come again for those who belong to him, that even right now, because of our relationship with Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. It is ours right now. We have been made rich because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Like, can you actually believe that the gospel is true for you and for me? And so Paul's saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And it's like most commentators agree that when it comes to verse 15, Paul had to make up that word inexpressible because there just wasn't a word in his language that could capture how overwhelmed he is by the grace of God upon him. So he just makes up a word. Like, how great is that? I'm gonna try that one day. So he just makes up this word, inexpressible. It's been said that those, there are those who give by their ability, and there, there are those who give beyond their ability. And those who give by their ability are the ones who come before God and they say, okay, God, here's what I'm going to give to you. Here's what I've decided in my heart to give. And this is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I can afford. This is what I've budgeted. And so, God, this is what I'm going to give to you. And, and they give by their ability. On the other hand, there are those who give beyond their ability. And the ones who give beyond their ability are more the ones who come before God and say, okay, God, Here's what I'm going to give. This is what I've decided in my heart to give, and this is going to stretch me. And there are going to be moments where it hurts to give this. And there's going to be times where I'm not really sure how it's all going to come together for me, but, but God, in faith, this is what I am giving to you. And for me, it's going to mean cutting back on the big vacation that I had planned and maybe doing something smaller. It's going to mean cutting back on the renovation that I had planned. It means cutting back on some of the expenses in my life that I've been regularly spending. And, and instead, I'm going to take that and I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to trust that you are going to multiply that in ways that I never could to bear a harvest that I can't wait to see. Those are the ones who give beyond their ability. It reminds me of the time when um, Jesus was sitting across from the treasury at the temple and he was watching people come. They were lining up and, and they were giving their gifts. They were dropping their gifts into the offering box. And there's a long line and, and a long line of rich people come and they drop large amounts of money into the offering box. And then there's this poor widow and, and all she has are two small copper coins. And you put those two coins together and they don't even equal a penny in our currency. But here she is, she's this poor widow. All she has are these two copper coins to rub together. All of these rich people go before her. They drop their offerings into the box and then it comes her turn. She walks up to the box, takes the two coins, drops them both into the box and she walks away. She has nothing left. Jesus looks to his disciples and he says to them, that poor widow has given more than everybody else. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, how is it that she could give more than everybody else? Because all these rich people have come and they've just lined up and they've dropped large amounts of money into the offering box, like lots of money, and, and she just had these two small copper coins. How is it that she gave more than everybody else? Jesus looks to them and says, all of the rich people gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. 
All of the rich people before her came and they gave by their ability. She came and she gave beyond her ability. How is it that you and I get to the place where we give not only by our ability, but we give beyond our ability? We get to that place when we truly understand and have been overwhelmed by the inexpressible gift of God. When we come to understand what has been done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that changes everything. We give to God our first and our best because God first loved us and gave us his best in his only son. 